Welcome to the Musculoskeletal Medicine Podcast, delivered by the Faculty of Sport and Exercise Medicine, designed for the multidisciplinary community of clinicians working in musculoskeletal clinics throughout the UK. In this series, I will be interviewing a range of people from a wide variety of specialities and interest groups to bring together real-world advice and top tips to help us in our day-to-day practice. Each episode is designed to comfortably fit into the average time it takes to commute to work, which is apparently around 57 minutes and longer if you live in London, sorry about that, and will be packed with knowledge directly from people at the top of their field. So, whether you're a physiotherapist, a GP, hospital doctor, first contact practitioner, or another clinician working with people living with musculoskeletal health concerns, you've come to the right place. My name is Giles Azan. I'm a GP working in the southeast of England, where I also work as a GP with an extended role in musculoskeletal medicine. So I'm delighted to introduce Professor Graham Close, a former professional rugby league player, now a professor of human physiology at Liverpool's John Moore University, where he leads the Sport Nutrition Masters. Uh, Graham's done a whole heap of research, uh, over 120 papers and review articles, and is accredited in from a range of nutritional groups and organisations. He is the expert nutrition consultant to England Rugby, Aston Villa Football Club, and is the lead nutritionist for the DP World Tour, what used to be the European World Tour in golf. He also has regular appearances on television and radio. So we're privileged and absolutely delighted to welcome you onto our podcast today. Great, great to be here, Giles. Thank you very much. So we, we've already had an opportunity to talk with you about sarcopenia. Um, and really the whole principle of spending these, uh, these sessions with you is to highlight the importance of nutrition in terms of managing some of the common musculoskeletal conditions. And I, I want to talk with you now a little bit around fatigue um, and, and energy management. And again, this looking at trying to steal as much of your knowledge uh, and take it across into the non-elite athlete population, the kind of people that we're seeing day to day in the kind of com- community musculoskeletal clinics. Uh, so these might be people with fatigue as part of a chronic fatigue syndrome or a post-viral fatigue, things like long COVID obviously has, has drawn our attention to, to fatigue. It, it, indeed, that's, that's probably the most significant uh, symptom of long COVID, which is, which is a huge issue for, for lots of patients presenting in primary care. So tell me a little bit about your, how, how your work has taken you into looking at fatigue, because I know you've been involved in some research around this stuff. Yeah, you know, working with my old employer at Liverpool University, uh, we, we did do a little bit of work in chronic fatigue. So we had patients with chronic fatigue coming into the into university and was looking at voluntary versus involuntary muscle force uh, and trying to get a better understanding of what's going on there. Very much interest, interested in it from a, an inflammatory perspective. And at the moment, you know, we have had a couple of grant applications, unsuccessful, I must add to try and study long COVID from a fatigue perspective. But certainly, in my opinion, there is uh, there's something physiologically going on in them worlds, not just uh, mentally, uh, but, but seems to be having a, a prolonged and profound effect on, on energy and, and fatigue. So it's a fascinating area. One where there's so many unanswered questions that I'm not even sure where we would start. 
And I suppose it, it, it makes me think that if, if we broaden it out, it makes me think that we're looking really about energy management, the availability of energy, whether that's locally in terms of metabolic function in muscles or more generally. And, that, and that's a huge part of your work in terms of sports nutrition, isn't it? Yeah, it, it always surprises me how little of attention the general public give to energy balance. Um, it, it's something that we spend a lot of time working on with the athletes. Uh, and, and it shocks people when I tell them that even as an, an elite rugby player and the amount of training that they do, they still need to think about how much they're eating on a daily basis to make sure that we don't over or under consume. Uh, with, with both being as catastrophic consequences as each other. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about overconsumption of foods, which can happen in athletes and general public, as we know, but also underconsumption uh, um, within the athletic world. That's getting a lot of attention at the moment, something that we're cl uh, classifying as low energy availability, which seems to be affecting not only the performance, but the long-term health of of some athletes by this uh, quest to get leaner and leaner, often for aesthetic reasons rather than a genuine performance enhancement. And, and the principles, because it's, it's this interesting dichotomy, isn't there? And you've got on the one hand the, you know, relative energy, you know, deficiency in sport, the red S stuff that, that, that you've referred to there. And then I, I always consider working in the, in the general population, we see more often the other end of the spectrum which is the yes. relative energy excess in life uh you know and, and and but but you're you're getting both and and this is this is true when when we talked about sarcopenia you've got this odd combination of obesity and malnutrition or undernutrition and and so you're you you're seeing both ends of the spectrum aren't you? yeah definitely um the the overnutrition that we're seeing a lot in general society i think is it's becoming harder and harder to manage. And it's because I think we're attacking it badly from both ends of the spectrum. And what I mean by that is, you know, I mentioned in, in the previous conversation about the lack of exercise that we do as society mm. now. So we know that, particularly in the UK, we're, we're very bad at it. We've, you know, once we get over the age of 24, we're down, we're down in single figures, like about 10% of the population but get 20 minutes of activity three times a week like 20 minutes of activity three times a week is the real minimum uh and we're under 10 percent of people on average who are achieving this and we're particularly poor you know if we look in the uk it's about 63 percent of the adults who who really don't get anywhere near guidance were other countries like holland um it's more 18 like percent and that's probably because of a cycling culture and anything like that. So on one end of the spectrum, we're more sedentary than we've ever been. And on the other end, how easy is it now to eat a lot of calories? You know, if you think about, I, I talk about the coffee shop culture. So when I was growing up, we, we had a Nescafe, didn't we? Or other coffee brands are available <laughs> with, a, with a splash of milk and it was probably 50 calories. And now we get a frappe mappuccino with caramel macchiatos or whatever they're called. And suddenly now a coffee's 500 calories. And then you have a muffin with it, which can be another 500. So you've had half of your day's calories in a coffee shop without really knowing it. And it's never been more in our face 
these high energy nutrient lacking foods that give us an immediate fix an immediate gratification but very little else and because of that by the end of the day we've been inactive we've overate and then over a lifetime we're, we're, we're now dealing with the obesity crisis and there's and there's this mismatch then so as you've just described that you know high calorie foods but nutritionally poor so in terms of energy management during the day what does that mean if you know if we if we're filling our faces with the frappuccino and the you know the quick fire stuff the you know the the hyper palatable foods that we're being you know that are available and in the context of this cost of living crisis that we're in at the moment the low cost you know often those hyper palatable foods are the low cost options what what's the impact of that on energy management so i'm thinking in terms of fatigue and the way we feel well there's lots of implications when we talk about helping people control satiety or hunger we talk about two things really we talk about making sure that proteins abundant in the diet because protein is one of the higher satiety foods make you feel full for longer as opposed to some of the sugary carbohydrates which is an immediate fix and then uh, really feeling hunger again and then the second thing is vegetables because of the higher fiber and that gut fullness and the effects that that has on hunger hormones etc so if what we're eating is just high sugar nutrient lacking foods we're low in fiber we're low in protein it's no wonder that we may be having an immediate spike in sugar and then a dip and you know we get all the negative consequences of that but from a, just a numbers game you know we talk about about two and a half thousand to two thousand for male and females being a an average caloric intake i think with the modern day sedentary lifestyle they may be slightly on the high end unfortunately and if we want to eat a diet where we're going to get enough vitamins for health we're going to get enough protein to maintain muscle we're going to be eating really good slow releasing carbohydrates for the the um, the energy side of things it's very hard to achieve all that if you've put a thousand to 1500 calories of rubbish in because now by the time we put all the good stuff in and the fact we're pretty sedentary well then we might be 500 to a thousand in excess and then we do the maths on that and before you know it our 32 inch waist jeans are now 36 and we're struggling to fit in them. So, and it sneaks up on you. That's the other thing is if it had an immediate consequence, I think we would do something about it. And that's the thing, the immediate consequence is an immediate feeling of goodness, you know, that immediate gratification of eating this rubbish. And the consequences are more of a long-term thing that sneaks up on you. And before you know it, you're not fitting in your clothes anymore. So I think it's part of an education that, that we might not see the negative consequences now, but you will do, and we need to get into much better habits. So, so I suppose that leads me on to the question, of, you know, when we're thinking about consequences, and, and there's many and very consequences related to that, that um, the dysfunctional diet, I guess, for want of a better word. Let, I want to ask you about your understanding with, with fatigue specifically the kind of underlying physiology and and i guess possibly like many things there's there's a number of different mechanisms that are associated with with fatigue and earlier fatigue when we think about you know fatigue beyond its normal physiological 
variants. What 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 do you understand to, to be what sits behind fatigue in in these populations, whether it's it's post viral fatigue or in in any other pathologies? What 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 sits behind that? Yeah, multiple things. Uh, I'm pretty interested in the moment in the consequences of this low-grade um, inflammatory situation and, yeah. and what that might be doing. And, and there's numerous consequent, uh, numerous reasons why we might have this going on, whether it is poor diet, but is it post-viral fatigue? You know, with the elderly, there's, an, there's suggestions around there. Uh, but I think we're only really scratching at the surface. And I, I think if we genuinely hand on heart knew what was the cause of all this, then it would be an easy fix and we wouldn't be needing to have podcasts on it and uh, and we'd be fixing it. I'm not convinced we're, we're really sure. Uh, what I do think we are very convinced on is that these poor diets that often result in uh, an immediate spike in, let's say, you know, uh, in blood sugar. So we get a high sugary diet as an immediate supply of energy and then the, the delayed crash. I'm not convinced that's a, a good way to be eating. I, I'm not somebody who shuns all carbohydrates. And, you know, right. it seems to be in the modern world, you need to be one side or another on an argument. You either need to be carbs are evil or carbs are everything. And <laughs> and I'm someone who, who sits in the middle that says, yeah. I think probably most people do overeat them. And if we've not got an active lifestyle, then we definitely overeat them. But I also think there's a lot of benefits from, from having a diet that is rich in, in, in quality, fibrous carbohydrates. So I, I think we don't know the underlying physiology. I'm interested in the role that a chronic low-grade inflammation may be playing. But I do think that the, the modern lack of exercise and poor diet certainly has a contributing factor. So if if you were seeing, and I don't know to what extent this this is something you've come across, I imagine this is something you'll have seen, you know, in, in terms of managing your your clients in the sports world, where do, do people present to you with fatigue as a problem in the world of sport then? Is that is that a common feature for you? Oh, without doubt, but for probably quite a different reason. Uh, and this is one where I'm trying to understand better where the two worlds collide. Yeah. You know, the world I work in with rugby, we're fatigued because we've just done 90 minutes on a field of getting beat up, um, smashing each other. And then we need to, we've got muscle soreness, we've got muscle damage, we've got inflammation, we've got poor sleep associated with that. Uh, and I, that's one thing that I do think in general society, we need to get a grip on, which is sleep. And we might digress onto that shortly. And then we've got the fatigue associated running out of fuel. So we know that the muscle can only store enough carbohydrate for about 60 minutes of high-intensity exercise. So most team sports are higher than 60 minutes. So we need to come up with nutritional strategies to deal with that. So we've got the acute fatigue that you get yeah. during games and competition because of substrate depletion. And then we've got the more prolonged fatigue that may be associated with muscle soreness, muscle recovery poor sleep, inflammation. So, so then if we're thinking about the non-elite athlete population and we're saying multifactorial, you know, as most things are, um, 
are there in, are there differences between the way we absorb and, and deal with nutrients then so I, I know we talked previously in terms of sarcopenia about the way our body loses its ability to um, make use of the protein that we consume as we age are, do you see a lot of variability in terms of that um, physiologically between people in, in just in terms of a normal diet? Yeah, but there are subtle differences that we see between the way that an athlete handles food and, uh, and, and the everyday individual. And even things like how much carbohydrate an athlete can store. You know, an athlete's muscle can store more carbohydrate than the general population. It's become equipped at, at doing so. Uh, as you said in the last conversation, we talked about uh, about the, the way that as we age, our protein requirements will, will change. We're, we're aware about uh, vitamin D. No, there's a lot of work coming up about not only the general population, but even athletes will be vitamin D deficient. And we're becoming more and more aware of the multiple roles that vitamin D may play within within the body. We've tested the general population as well as athletes, and the vast majority we test are, are vitamin D deficient, and that may have effects not only on fatigue but on on, on our mental health as well. Uh, we, we've we've shown in our labs marked improvement in muscle regeneration when we begin to correct vitamin D problems, and we know that the lack of sunlight exposure is a main reason. And as we get older, we maybe don't get as much sunlight exposure. We maybe don't go out as much. We don't exercise outdoors as much. So, so there, are, there are a few subtleties that we need to look at, but I try not to overgeneralize and I, I try to more look at it on an individual basis. It, it, than a well, it's a, it's a really controversial subject, isn't it? And it's kind of the mention of vitamin D as a GP sets my, my upper lip twitching because it's, it's, it's kind of we've gone round and round in circles with it in terms of you know, understanding the relevance. And yet, of course, you know, in a Northern Hemisphere country, most of us mid-January are going to be vitamin D deficient or insufficient mm. at least. And, and so it, it's like, like you say, it's very difficult to generalise the relevance to the individual. So if I'm going to, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming away from the elite athlete and, and, and keep on topic in terms of the, 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 you know the the average person out there who it, it isn't related to the fact they've been on a rugby pitch for for ninety minutes. In terms of then, how how would you look at that individual? You said it, it's down to the individual. How would you go about understanding that? What would be your approach to thinking about the factors that might be relevant for that individual in front? Um, I would try and look if there's any big wins that we can immediately have some uh, some effects on. So. You know, you would start off by looking at the diet. You know, are there any real red flags in the diet? Have they decided to cut out certain food groups because we've read on the internet that that's a good a good thing to do? You know, are they following a no-carbohydrate diet or have they avoided all dairy because someone told them that dairy is bad for them? Um, how is the hydration? You know, a lot of people can be in a chronic state of, of dehydration. Are there any red flags around things like vitamin D, which we know or we believe may have an effect on things like fatigue? And then I would be going a little bit wider. So as I've mentioned a couple of times, sleep, you know, 
the amount of people I speak to know from an athletic perspective and general public who are really poor sleepers. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's modern lifestyle that set us up to be poor sleepers. You know, our, our bedrooms used to be a place where we sleep and now we're a technology haven where most people have TVs in there. The, the phone is their alarm. So we're, we're playing on the mobile phone prior to bed. There's no routine. The, the temperature might be wrong. You know, we get our athletes fitted for the right pillows and duvets. And, and uh, you know, how many people have a different duvet for summer and winter? How mm. many have even thought about what is a pillow that is most suited to help them get a, non, a good night's rest based on the sleeping techniques? So but there's lots of things I think we can do to improve someone's sleep. And I think the more I, I see this in modern society, the more I think that poor sleep is a massive reason why, as a society, we are chronically fatigued? Undoubtedly, it, it, it absolutely it, it you know it seems churlish not to mention that you know in the context of this. If I may bring us back to then think specifically about the role of nutrition with fatigue, you, you've you've highlighted you know three things there in terms of adequate hydration, vitamin D as as something with with an evidence base for it, for being responsible, and then exclusion diets. Are there any more specifics in terms of the diet? I mean, are are you you thinking around a a kind of the the pro-inflammatory diets? I mean, where do you go with it? Can you you, you add more more detail to that? Um, Yeah, I think that we do tend to, like you said, spend a lot of time because of our hectic lifestyles, eating, you know, high sugary, quick fix foods uh, and at the expense of a lot of vegetable matter. Uh, mm. You know, a lot of people ask me about plant-based eating and I always say that I think everyone should be plant-based, just not plant-exclusive. Yeah. And, and our diets should really be based around plant matter. Uh, I don't think most of us eat anywhere near the recommended amount of fruits and vegetables in a day. And then on, because of that, I do wonder if we were to do some some screening, were, are we going to be picking up more deficiencies than we ever think we would be picking up? You know, we, we've said vitamin D, but there's obviously lots of other things. We know, in the, in a, again, in an athletic perspective, but then that, I go back to athletic because I think we measure these things more. Yeah. But we're picking up more and more iron deficiencies in, in an athletic context. It's been suggested that, something like 20% of females and about 10% of male athletes when tested will be presented with some form of iron deficiency. And is that um, a nutritional deficit that's led? To, I mean, obviously, in, in there's a range of reasons why you can you can have an iron deficit. Yes. Um, and in, in, in women, that might relate to their menstrual cycle. Correct. What, what would be the factors you'd look at? In, in men, is that a, more of a, a nutritional thing? With... With exercising men, there is a variety of reasons, whether it's small losses, even, you know, things like foot strike and uh, hemolysis that you may get from from running. It is certainly uh, some dietary issues associated with it. It's a tough one, really, because I think as a society, we have started to move away from some foods that are naturally rich in in iron, Um, but there's definitely less red meat being eaten. And, and I think in many ways that's a good thing, but obviously that's a major uh, contributor to, to the iron. There's a lot of poor 
dietary practices that we, we do pick up from that perspective. But yeah, I think it's a combination of the exercise and the diet. And then as you say, with females, obviously we need to take into consideration the, the menstrual cycle as well. I think the other thing is we measure it more. Yeah. Because we're very aware with athletes that low iron status will affect fatigue and will uh, potentially limit our adaptations to endurance training. We, we measure it and the more you measure something, the more likely you are to pick it up. And I do wonder if we did more regular screening, I'm not saying that we should do, but if we did, would we then be picking up more deficiencies? Because we only really tend to test it when someone's presented with symptoms, don't we, in, in general well, practice? And, and that, I suppose that's the challenge, in, in certainly in general practice, in terms of looking for markers, things that we can test, you know, objective markers of dysfunction from a nutritional perspective are very, very limited. And, you know, assessing for things, you know, low-grade inflammation, you know, we, we might pick up on a, a raised CRP in people with obesity, but beyond that, you know, it's very limited. I, I wonder what, what are the kind of biomarkers that you might think about when you're dealing somebody with, with, I guess, fatigue principally? Yeah, and I think that's the challenge. I'm not convinced there's any really good yeah. biomarkers there. Uh, it's inter interesting in, in men, uh, and this is some anecdotal stuff from a very, very elite cyclist, that when they measure lots of things and what they can normally predict is a, a cyclist is about to crash and burn when the testosterone drops and you know because of that people have talked about in, in an athletic situation monitoring testosterone as a marker of overtraining or undernutrition or under carbohydrate whichever way you want to look at it but if, if we got people who are in a male perspective suffering from you know red so the relative energy deficiency not getting enough nutrients in or overtraining mm -hmm. we generally see that that is that follows a drop in testosterone. But I don't think we've got anything in routine practice at the moment that is simple, uh, you know, to measure. I've just spent an hour before this call today uh, speaking with a, with a point-of-care um, blood testing company about what mm. can we be trying to screen yeah. a bit more regular. Uh, and there's no real simple fix to this, I don't think, at the moment. And there's always that challenge of correlation versus causation, isn't yeah. it? And, it, it, you know, I think that's, again, you can get lost down a rabbit hole with this, can't you? And it's, I, I guess, if we bring it back to the kind of, uh, you know, frontline NHS clinician, we're not going to start going on a, on a nutritional fishing trip here. You know, it may be of value to check their, you know, their ferritin. It may be of value to check their vitamin D from what you described. But, it, again, it, we're not we're not suggesting we're going to start checking every last vitamin available to humanity correct and, and also i think and, and we could go on for ages on vitamin d because it's something i've spent a lot of time mm. working on i'm still not convinced we're measuring the right thing by the way because what we know is if we was to measure vitamin d in an ethnically diverse um, group of individuals the chances are the darker the skin the lower the vitamin d yeah. But that doesn't always mean there's a problem in them individuals. Um, and we've seen that a lot in athletic situations where we've got some people with very low 25 OHD, the main marker yeah. that we use of vitamin D, but with absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. And there's a suggestion that by changes in vitamin D binding protein uh, and the affinity of vitamin D to its receptor, that in ethnically diverse individuals, it may be oversimplification 
just to measure 25 OHD and use that as a catch-all screen for everybody. And I think I would urge that as some caution, but if we are measuring vitamin D blanketly and we're picking up in some of some, some darker-skinned individuals that it's really low, we've got to follow that up with some physiology and ask, is it really a problem or is yeah. it just that they have lower vitamin D? Right. So, so, so you'd be less inclined. I mean, obviously, it always very. It depends on the individual in front of you and their symptoms. But in in darker skinned individuals, you'd advocate more. We should check in with them about what their symptoms are, rather than blindly treating. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably for a, a, you know a lot of people. And what I'm trying to do at the moment is um, do the research to see is there a better marker yeah. uh, that we should be using across a wide population and you know it, it, if we look at a lot of our science and there's, there's massive flaws in it but most research is tends to be done in in a, in a young white male population um and yeah. then we try and extrapolate that across genders and across ethnicities and we, we need to be a lot better than that as research scientists understood it's it's as you say it's that's historically been consistently a, a major problem isn't it is that we've got a very monochrome research population um, so yeah it's fascinating and as always it's about the individual in front of you rather than treating generically but but what, what i mean i've always thought that in the population that i'm seeing you you can you can you can start talking about real fine-tuned detail about whether they're eating enough you know fermented foods and the reality though is is day to day in the population i'm seeing you know it's not so much about how much kimchi and quinoa they're eating it's about how much kfc and dominoes is going down range you know that's the issue isn't it so we in, in terms of practical application of this knowledge it really is big ticket stuff isn't it we're, we're, we're talking about the, the the broader um you know have they got a variety in their diet is there a protein in there is the vegetables fruits and, and and a reduction in high sugar foods i mean I'm, I'm wondering about the key messages if i was to sit in front of you as an overweight fatigued 45 year old um and that's really very easy for me to uh, imagine myself in that position what, what would be the the kind of big ticket advice you'd give them? yeah and this is probably a reason why i'm not a millionaire because as i said before you know <laughs> i think what i'm going to say is quite blindingly obvious uh, and people want catchy and novel and we want like easy answers but it's about doing the basics and doing them consistently you know it's about making sure that we follow the advice that has been given when it comes to nutrition and a lot of i think an issue with nutrition you know giles is that we spend so much time arguing about what we disagree on yeah well when you actually break it down that's such a small part of it when we look at it most people whether it's nutritionists, dietitians, every anybody, will agree on about ninety percent. I think most people will will agree that you know limit the processed foods, limit the high sugar, you know foods like that. Try and get more vegetables into us. Try and choose lean, high quality proteins. Try and get energy balance in line, so we're not eating much more than we expend. Try and be consistent with our eating. Try and not have big huge gaps in in what we would eat in the day so we're trying to eat consistently and then when it comes to exercise i think most people would agree that we just need to do something 
and that's something should really in include a little bit of resistance work. I think I don't know anyone who would disagree that we're, as a society we're becoming really bad at sleeping uh, and we don't give it anywhere near enough attention. So eat better, get some exercise uh, and sleep. And something I've heard said before, and I didn't think of this, so I can't take credit, is mm. how often do we sit up at night watching rubbish TV, trying to stay awake? to watch a repeat of something you've watched a hundred times. <laughs> and someone once said to me that don't stay up at night to watch something you wouldn't wake up early in the morning to watch. Yeah. So would you set your alarm at 5am to watch a repeat of Friends on UK Gold? No chance. <laughs> so why we sat up at night watching a repeat of Friends on UK Gold? Get yourself into a good habit. You know, there are, what we know about sleep is routine is everything. So try and get a consistent time to bed. Try and get a, a consistent uh, strategy that we're doing that hour before bed. And if we try and eat consistently with more fruits and vegetables, we limit the processed foods. We get a routine to our eating. We try and get exercise into our lifestyle at least three times a week. And we try and get a routine to our sleeping. I think that the fatigue that you're talking about will more or less take care of itself. And it's it's phenomenal, isn't it? Because it, I, I suppose one of the, the the dangers in the limited nutritional knowledge a lot of us, you know, primary care clinicians would have is that it's very tempting to look at it, see a lot of this discussion and debate and controversy that's out there, and and be quite put off by that. And 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 one of the potential results is that that we as clinicians can feel disempowered in being able to give advice, which, like you say. You know, it's not rocket science, this, no. uh, you know, and I, that, that, that is the sort of advice that you've described is something that it doesn't matter if you're a physiotherapist sitting in a clinic, if you're a GP, if you're a first contact practitioner, you know, actually the, those, those core values around, you know, sleep activity and then the basics of a healthy nutrition, it, it, it's just really powerful to think that we can, we can, Get, get those messages across um and, and yes of course there's lots of fine tuning there but what we've described there is relevant for what 90 percent plus of what we're seeing in practice yeah and, and i'll give you my theory on all diets here um yeah. oversimplified but just go with me on it if you yeah go on, go on so ultimately i'm convinced so when I talk about weight, it's about energy balance, calories in, calories out. And we've been all around the houses, whether it's been low fat, low carb, mm. paleo, neo, keto, you name it, cabbage soup, whatever. <laughs> we've had all these diets, which generally every single one of them I've told you will initially work. And why will it work? Well, when you give somebody a set of rules that are hard to follow, they'll generally eat less. So when low fat first came out, all you could do was choose leaner cuts of meat, substitute a lot of the fat out of the diet, and suddenly you cut your calories. Mm. That worked brilliantly. And then what happened was the supermarkets got hold of this, and now you could get low-fat yogurts, which were packed full of sugar. And suddenly yeah. what now happens is you're no longer in a calorie deficit because we found a way to cheat or to work that system. So then the low-carb diets came out, and that really worked because – suddenly a chicken sandwich became a chicken salad. Mm. And then what happened was you cut out the calories, so the calories dropped. Then you get into a supermarket, and now you've got low-carb biscuits and low-carb ice creams. 
and suddenly no, that won't work anymore. So every day it works in the same way. It gives you a set of rules to follow that makes it hard for you to eat how you were doing. You eat less and you lose weight. Then what happens, the supermarket gets all of it and it's easy to follow now. So all we need to think about if you want to drop a little bit of, uh, a bit of body fat is how are we going to come up with a way of eating that will lower what you eat that you can do on a long term. And, and for me, there's real simple ways to do that about choosing leaner cuts of meat, about reducing some of the, the, the high energy sugary foods and replacing them with vegetables and plant matter. And, and if we do all that, we're eating not only in a way that will help with our body composition, but we'll be ticking all the nutritional boxes for long-term sustainability. That's fantastic. It, it, it's brilliant, Graham. These, 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 these simple messages that we can, you know, we can really share. And it's, you know, ultimately what we're, we're nudging towards here is that this is about behavioural change, you know, lifestyle interventions, which, you know, there is a whole another podcast that we will, we will be doing at some point around that because, you know, it, but, but, but it's very helpful, I think, as clinicians to get hold of them, some simple principles, you know, I've, I've been scribbling down uh, and I think that the, the, the key phrase for me that, that I'm, I'm going to take from this is, is that, that you're, you're, the quote of do the basics and do them consistently. I thought just absolutely summarizes what, what we put across. And I think it's very empowering for us as clinicians to hear that, that that's something we can do, we can share with the, the people that we're working with. Um, that's fantastic. Really, really helpful stuff, Graham. And whilst I am, I'm, I'm, you're absolutely missing a trick in not marketing the Graham Close, you know, nutritional shape program. Um, I, I really appreciate your candor. I think it's very, really helpful. No problem at all. And uh, you <laughs> mentioned behavior change. Right? And I, I think if I was going to give a final little bit of do please, uh, my thoughts around this is that yes, behavior change is, is absolutely crucial but we also need to bear in mind with all that individual preference so for example if i was to pick any diet that i think is probably the best it would probably be something based around mediterranean style eating so mm. you know fish vegetables that type of way of eating but if you're somebody who doesn't like fish and vegetables what an absolute numpty i would be <laughs> to recommend that diet what i need to do is come up with a way of eating but we'll still tick all your nutritional requirements, but you're going to enjoy doing it. We can't forget that there's not many pleasures left in life. Yeah. You know, let's not get me on politics, but I'm going to take <laughs> most, of them, most of these pleasures away. But food is one of them, isn't it? Mm. There's a reason why most people's first date is you take your partner or your yeah. future partner to a restaurant, don't you? Yeah. That was my first date with my wife. Went to the Chinese. And it's a feel-good factor, and it should be fun, and it should be enjoyable. And I don't want to take away that from people. I want them to enjoy eating. So I think a key challenge for the nutritionist and dietitian is to come up with a way of helping the individual to hit all their nutritional goals, but they're still going to enjoy eating it. And yeah. please don't recommend somebody who spent their whole life eating fried food and fry-ups and, uh, and English breakfasts to suddenly think tomorrow they're going to eat salmon and vegetables. We've got to be better than that. And we've got to help them achieve their goals in a way that they're still going to enjoy their life. That's brilliant. What, what, what a fabulous place to wrap up this episode. And I, 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 yeah, really, really important. 
I, I'm going to ask you the question, uh, what are the three key messages you would want our listeners to take from this from this session? Um, consistency, that there's no quick fixes. Yeah. You know, you know, we can start the fix immediately. So we, the, the, the fix can start, but you need to be consistent with it. And please look at long term rather than, than trying to get everything fixed overnight. So that'd be the first one. Let's get the basics right. Let's not get confused by people trying to tell you, you know, it's a really complicated discipline. It, it's about getting the fundamental basics right. And I think the third one is the importance of sleep in this big equation is one that I think we're going to value more and more. And if you've got poor sleep, broken sleep, if, if, if it's something you struggle with, please try and get some advice on that. And don't, if, if you're a business person working hard, please don't see lack of sleep as a, as a, a badge of success. You know, it really isn't. It carries a similar illness side effects of smoking in some ways so please you know focus on good quality sleep as well fantastic graham thank you so much um where can people find out more about you and and your social media contacts the the perhaps the easiest way is to a little google search my name graham close with liverpool john moore's university and you'll find my university webpage. Uh, for the more tech savvy, close underscore nutrition uh, is my Twitter handle. Uh, Instagram, it's close nutrition without the underscore. Somebody beat me to it on the on the Twitter. I, I'm pretty easy to stalk and I'm always happy to <laughs> have conversations. Graham, you've been an absolute star. It's been so interesting listening to your thoughts around this. And, and like I say, there's some really valuable take homes for us to use in, in practice. So... Uh, thank you so much for your time. It is much. Absolute pleasure. And, uh, you know, thanks for the conversation. It was really enjoyable.